So here we are, we gather this morning on a Sunday in which we call Palm Sunday, and uh, efforts will be made this week by many churches to get our attention and the attention of many sinners within the community upon the facts of the gospel. Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his sufferings that lead up to the cross and his crucifixion, and then his resurrection from the dead that we will celebrate next Sunday. Now, I don't believe that the Lenten calendar is something that is commanded for us to observe in churches. I don't think that there's a problem with it. I think that whether you do or don't follow that, that is a matter of of your own personal decision. But we have to uh, consider what we are commanded by Scripture, and we need to follow what Scripture says. We also have to remember that when tradition comes, we can have our tradition, but we need to make sure that tradition doesn't over uh, go over what Scripture says. So we can hold that in attention, because nowhere in the Bible does it command us to observe this time of year, except that we do observe it every Lord's uh, the day in which we observe the Lord's Supper. In doing that, we remember his death and his resurrection and what he has done. And then every Sunday, we remember his resurrection from the dead. Now, we, as uh, a commandment, are told to keep the Sabbath holy, although Jesus is now our Sabbath rest. All ye who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. So now, we don't meet on Saturday. We meet on Sunday because that is the day in which our Savior was resurrected. And we are commanded not to forsake ourselves the gathering. And so we gather on Sunday in commemoration of his resurrection from the dead. The thing is, there are many religious people around the world who are celebrating Palm Sunday. And of course, you'll be tempted to correct me and say, it's not religious people, it's, it's Christian people, because Christians celebrate Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday is a distinctly Christian holiday. It's always celebrated on the Sunday before Easter or Resurrection Sunday. It's distinctly a Christian celebration. And Palm Sunday celebrates when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, of a donkey. We know that on that day, there were crowds that gathered round him, shouting, Hosanna, and waving palm branches. And that's why it's called Palm Sunday. However, 
a little bit of a question arises because in the Gospels, when you look at the four evangelists, you will see what they wrote about this triumphal entry. Matthew wrote that people waved branches. Mark, as Gary read, said they were leafy branches. Luke doesn't mention waving branches at all. And only John reveals specifically that the branches were from palm trees. We see the influence of secular Rome in this celebration that the early church commended for its people. Because the palm branch was a uh, a uh, signified victory. It was a symbol of victory. And everyone loves to celebrate victory, don't we? And so as the visible church uh, started to organize, they had a, a, a various special days connected with the crucifixion and the resurrection. And these became very important. A matter of fact, in many churches, they were non-negotiable. Adherents of organized churches had to celebrate Lent, which is a time of self-denial for six weeks before Resurrection Sunday, which begins on Ash Wednesday. And so that also must be celebrated. But a newcomer to Christianity... And if they were a true Berean, would end up looking at the Bible and say, where in the world is this mentioned in Scripture? That we should be doing this. They might end up saying, this is not mentioned either in the Acts of the Apostles or any of the letters to the various churches. Where the church is has to celebrate Lent and Ash Wednesday and Palm Sunday and even uh, Easter, as many would say. And the term Easter, uh, it, it strikes a lot of people as we shouldn't be calling it that. But if you look in the King James Version in Acts 12.4, the translators actually translated the word Pascha, Easter. And I think it's it's sort of unusual that a lot of the people that make this distinction, it is Resurrection Sunday and that's it, and do not call it uh, Easter, will at the same time call the birth of Jesus Christmas. So just to have a consistency, we just have to think about whether we call it one or the other, we can see actually in one translation... It is translated Easter. And hopefully you get the idea that the most special days are greater than these days that we have set apart. It is a special day every single Sunday that we gather. Every Sunday that we come together as a body to observe the Lord's day and fellowship and worship and praise Him is the most important thing. Because we see that there is this burgeoning monster 
that is neither the church nor Christian. We all know that around this time of year, both Easter and Christmas, churches are filled. They are filled to overflowing. And it's the hope as sincere Christians that we have the ability to use this time to help people understand and consider the glory of Christ and His passion for saving sinners. That we would take the preaching of the Word of God, which is both precious and most important to God's people, and we would use it as a witness to the community around us. It's my prayer that each one of us would see in the desire and actions of our Lord the model for each one of us to be soul winners. That each one of us, by God's grace, would develop every good longing in ourselves to be able to take the gospel to those who are lost. To take the gospel to those in need. There was someone in each one of your lives that did that. That stepped out. That said, I have such a love for my Savior and He has told me of a wondrous work. And let me sing that to you. The problem that we have is every single person in this story of the triumphal entry but one was only religious. Jesus Christ himself was the only one that realized what was happening. None of the rest of the people in the story seemed to grasp the real meaning of what they were involved in. And honestly, most of them within four days would oppose Jesus. How many of those people that come in to churches every Easter and every Christmas after just a couple days want nothing to do with Jesus Christ? So in this story we find a picture that should really be soundly applied to modern religion. Where many people of the world call themselves Christian, they name the name of Christ, and they are as confused as those people who are waving palm branches. They are as confused as actually the disciples were themselves at this time. And some people are even as confused as the Pharisees were. The disciples at this point really didn't understand what was going on. They'd been told once again that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. As a matter of fact, Mary just got done anointing him for burial. But instead of simply walking into Jerusalem 
we read in Matthew 21 that Jesus sent his disciples to a village to fetch a donkey that had never been ridden on before. And then there is this celebration as he enters the city. The celebration that no one has a clue what's going on. But later after the resurrection, they'll look back and they will have a new understanding. They will understand that it was fulfilling to the letter, the messianic scriptures. And then it would become clear to them The king of Israel indeed was to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, and behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so he didn't do what the crowd wanted. He came willingly to do what the world need. They needed a Savior. What did the crowd want? It's not hard to figure out. You can listen to what they're saying. You can see what they're doing. They're waving palm branches. To them, the palms are an emblem of victory. As a matter of fact, when Simon Maccabee drove the Syrian garrison from Jerusalem in 141 uh, B.C. and liberated the capital from the evil control of Eusalid, uh, the Eusalid king Antiochus Ephraims, the people of, Ju- of Jerusalem had greeted Simon with singing and waving palm branches. And later during the ill-fated re- rebellion against the Uh, The Romans, the Jews that rebelled actually put the the palm on their, their coins. And what was that saying? It was saying, Hosanna, which means save, I pray. Or literally, salvation is now here. Why then? The one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah has arrived. So the call, Jesus, not the son of David, but the king of Israel, that one actually turned the hair of the priest chiefs gray prematurely because they knew that if this was a rebellion, then it better, it better take place and it better be successful because Rome would definitely see this as an act of rebellion. Even though this was the day they were waiting for. This is the day of their salvation. Their Messiah was there. They're right about that in one way, but they're awfully, dreadfully wrong at the same time. Before we get too far, let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. John chapter 12, and start, starting with verse 12, and we'll read through verse 19.
John chapter 12. Starting with verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel! Then Jesus, when He had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when they, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now we see in verse 12, the first thing that we read is the next day. It's Sunday. The day after Jesus was in Bethany at Lazarus's house in the previous story, we read of the large crowd that had come to the feast, which is in John eleven fifty five. It says many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And John tells us in the next verse that they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, "What do you think?" That he will not come to the feast at all? And then they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. That was against all their expectations. Think about that. These Pharisees wanted him dead. And in chapter 11, verse 57, we read that they had even been given a command given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they may, might seize him. That should tell us how serious this is. They wanted to wipe Jesus out. They wanted to take all of the eyewitnesses out. Actually, John chapter 12 and verses 9-11 and 9 through 11 says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. You see, Jesus is walking into a trap. Why? Because He was there to fulfill a mission. John 6.38 says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see, all these people were gathering together. They had their own mission for Jesus. They were looking for political salvation from, 
from Rome. From their perspective, they, they looked at the Davidic kingdom as being restored. After all, it's Passover. It's the perfect time. Why? Because there would be millions of Jews in that city. Millions. And the Roman garrisons of, of, of thousands wouldn't have a chance. You see, they saw the end of Roman rule. They saw the end of all their taxes, their collaborators, their oppression. And it was all within sight. Excitement was even further whipped up because people are coming from Bethany where Lazarus was raised and they said, hey, guess what? We can go see this, this man Lazarus too. How would you like to shake the hand of a dead man? They were all whipped up over this. And they said, who can do this except the Messiah? And so continue in, in verse 12 of our text. It says, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. These large crowds carried these palm branches. They went out of the city gate to meet Him. And like I said, why palm branches? Because that was a symbol of, of victory. But one thing they didn't think about, it's also the symbol of praise. We see that example in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse nine, verses 9 and 10. It says, Great multitude that no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And with those branches we hear them crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But see, they didn't see that aspect. They saw the palm branch as a symbol of liberation. Political liberation. This is what you would have felt so deeply about if you were a first century Jewish person and you were waiting on the road for Jesus. And so they got out these palm branches and went to meet Him as He approached the city. And they cried out, Hosanna is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I think it's sort of ironic that we traditionally refer to the scene as the triumphal entry. I mean, is it really? Don't worry. The answer is both yes and no. It is both yes and no. It is yes because the people are here praising Jesus as the promised Messiah. The King who would deliver them from their enemies. And that's just who He was. The word Hosanna actually is a Propitious word, meaning it w they will be saved from the wrath of God. Or, save we pray. 
It's a way of confessing that the one who's riding into Jerusalem was a conquering king. And that's what these people shouted. And it actually comes from Psalm 118, 25 and 26, where they shouted the Hebrew version, which is Hoshana, Hoshiana. They said, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. But in reality, as we know, this entry into Jerusalem ultimately led to Jesus' death. And the death would actually be seen as a defeat. I mean, what would you do if your king is killed? You wouldn't shout in victory. You would weep and mourn. But it was a triumphal entry, even in light of Jesus' impending death because the death of this king was quite unlike any other in history this death would bring victory and it was through death that king jesus would cast out rulers of this world he would take the throne and draw people to himself and so we read in verses 14 and 15 then jesus when he when he found A young donkey sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's donkey's colt. You see, these people had been waiting for years, hundreds of years. Their ancestors were hoping for this promised king, the one who would sit on David's throne. And actually, God made the promise to David somewhere around 1000 B.C. And so these people were faced with the lack of a king for almost 600 years before Jesus was born. They wanted the king to restore the nation of Israel. But they weren't expecting the king who would buy their salvation by the sacrifice of his own blood on the cross. They did want a king, but they didn't want a king who would own them and rule, rule in their hearts. They were excited about the prospect of a promised ruler who would, who would win their long-sought-for independence. But they didn't understand that Jesus was Savior. Most mostly because they didn't understand their need for a Savior. The Romans were used to seeing great leaders ride into the city to display their Roman triumph. For their kings, the parades were far different than this one. Their parades featured a a display of impressive military men and political leaders riding on the backs of big white horses, completely dressed with full military regalia. For the Romans to watch this, featuring Jesus riding in on a donkey with a bunch of old coats and broken palm trees, probably would have given them a good laugh. It was the joke of the hour. But you see, Jesus didn't come like so many other false messiahs. 
He didn't come to start a rebellion against Rome. There were a number of things about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that should have actually clued them in. First of all, he didn't come to head an army. Secondly, he didn't come riding a war horse. He rode in on a donkey. A donkey is not an animal of war. It's always, it's always an animal uh, associated with peaceful purposes. And that's fitting. Because Jesus had come not to make war, but peace. But peace between who? It's peace between God and man. He didn't come to start a rebellion of the Jews against the Roman Empire. He came to end the rebellion that had started long ago in the Garden of Eden. Where man rebelled against his Creator in that garden. And therefore brought himself under the wrath and curse of God. And the only way Jesus could do that was by bearing the punishment of his sheep for himself and dying in, the, in their place on the cross. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to fulfill a purpose, a prophetic plan of God that was in the Word of God. And to be honest, this, this parade didn't cut it for the Jews. They were still looking for their Messiah to ride into Jerusalem and deliver them. How could they possibly have known that this person riding on this donkey was their king? The Word of God says so. All they had to do is read Scripture they would have known that Israel's king would first ride in on a donkey. The entire nation missed the true significance of this moment because their ignorance of God's written word. The momentum is building for Jesus Christ, but the problem here is that these people think it's physical. And in fact, it's spiritual. There is a time when Jesus will ride in in a different way. And that's at his second coming. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 through 16. Here it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, 
and His name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it He should strike the nations. And He Himself will rule, rule them with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and, and wrath of Almighty God. And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, today the religious community is so much like those confused people waving those palm branches, throwing their cloaks on the ground, shouting about the King who came in the name of the Lord. Religious people today think that Lord Jesus is the liberator. They, they like the idea of Him granting them safe passage through the valley of the shadow of death out of hell and into heaven. They like the confidence that comes from knowing when life takes a bad turn, they can always turn to Him in prayer. And there will be some sort of miracle to bring them through their Red Sea moment. And they're quite satisfied to believe that if they go to church somewhere somewhat regular, participate in some form of worship, and generally live according to acceptable religious standards, they will have a pretty good life. The crowd found at most religious events today aren't interested in having a Savior who bought them at a price by His blood, who is not only Savior but Lord and has every right to be their Lord. No, the crowd today insists on independence, manifest destiny, free exercise of their own rights, or what they perceive as their rights. They don't want someone to tell them what to do or how to do it. But the Word of God does. Jesus does. Jesus is the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is also our Creator who has every right to tell us in precise detail how to live our lives in a way that brings Him glory. And what's so sad, both now and then, is this crowd shouting and cheering. But Luke 19.41-42 says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. That's the way Jesus saw this. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for you peace. 
But now they are hidden from your eyes. Their lack of understanding didn't, didn't shock Jesus. It was hidden from their eyes. And it would be revealed at a later time. And so we continue in verse 16 of our text. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about Him. Written! And that they had done these things to Him. The disciples are watching this bizarre parade. Jesus climbing on the back of a donkey, riding into Jerusalem. People waving palm branches, throwing old coats on the ground, and shouting things. And these disciples themselves have no clue what's going on here. These were mind-boggling to them as well. They didn't see the significance until Jesus was glorified and the Holy Spirit brought these things to their mind. They would come to understand the fulfillment of the prophecy and the lesson this taught Israel that she refused to humble herself even when her king did. They would also understand the glory of Christ's second coming. These men who walked with Jesus for three years misunderstood the Messiah's purpose. Without exception, the twelve saw Jesus as the promised king who would free Israel from Rome. One of the disciples named Simon the Zealot, oh, by the way, this, this doesn't mean he was zealous for soul winners. He was actually associated with the Zealotes, a political group. But you know what? He became a soul winner. When his eyes were open to the truth, he became a soul winner. And it's almost certain that Judas Iscariot was driven by political aspirations as well. We know that James and John were because they pressured their mom into requesting chief positions from Jesus' cabinet when he finally would establish his kingdom. Because the disciples were transformed transfixed on political position. They couldn't grasp the teaching about Jesus and His torture and crucifixion and death. How could a conquering king be crucified? And so as a result, even Jesus' resurrection left them baffled. I mean, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw a brief display of His glory. If you please just turn to, to Matthew chapter 17. And we'll, we'll see where these men saw that and you can see the confusion even then. Matthew 17, starting with verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John his, uh, his brother led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. 
Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Someone sits there and tells you, I have seen Jesus. You would fall on your face and be afraid. But Jesus came and touched them. He says, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say, Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. You see, there's understanding. When they see the glory, there's some, but not all. They had an idea of building these tabernacles as a memorial. But in verse 16, it says, when Jesus was glorified, they would then remember these things. Jesus was glorified in the resurrection. Resurrection was part of the glory attached to the crucifixion. And in that, Jesus set the standard for the glorified body that each one of us will have one day. The reality is there's a lot of religious people who talk about Jesus, but they really don't know Jesus. Only those who have been regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit will be able to understand who Jesus is. Only through the miracle of salvation by grace through faith will they understand that Jesus came to earth to be the redeemer of fallen creation and that it was through his blood sacrifice. And you know, there are times when even in our ignorance we're used. The crowd continued to bear witness even though they didn't intend it. In verse 17 of our, our text it says, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and was raised from the dead, bore witness. Some of these people, they saw Lazarus. They were convinced that this man had to be the promised king. Who else could raise Lazarus from the dead? And so they shouted, God save us now! As a witness, affirming Jesus saving Lazarus from the great enemy called death. 
After all, Jesus couldn't raise someone from the dead if He wasn't coming in the name of the Lord. And so they were absolutely impressed by this demonstration of power. They were excited by it. And that's what happens is people are excited by things. Sometimes in churches, we have where you walk in, you hear a sermon, and you're dumber when you walk out. There are other times when you walk in and all you hear is a pastor trying to tell you that he wants to whip you up into a frenzy so you get all excited. And you walk out and you have no idea what the Word of God is trying to convey to you. To be able to apply to your heart. We need to preach the Gospel. We don't need some fancy man dribbling down his chin. Something that gets you whipped up in a frenzy and you walk out and you have no idea what to do. And so continuing in verse 18, we read, For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. That's the same reason people follow, follow false teachers. Because of a sign. Because of a miraculous work. The difference is Jesus is, was real. False teachers and prophets are false lying works. All kinds of people will be attracted to the spectacular and the unusual. Charles Spurgeon says, for a pastor to have a carnival one week to get people in, he'll have to have a bigger carnival the next week to keep them. People want to see things. They want to see the spectacular. But that's all coming from the father of lies. Satan himself. He knows better than anyone that people will be deceived through these marvelous works. question is not, are you attracted to Jesus because he does unusual things? The question is, do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, proved by his miracles, who paid the penalty for your sin with his own blood? The people didn't really believe that Jesus was their Savior, but still that brought fear to the Pharisees. Because they didn't care whether what they believed the Pharisees, in verse 19, says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. They're fighting amongst themselves. Look, the world has gone after them. They're blaming each other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees must have been winning. That's why they were sad, you see. That's a bad one. But you know what? the Pharisees were less concerned about Jesus' political uh, agenda. They were more worried that they were going to be exposed by Him as being false, phonies. The more people who believed in Jesus would be less people that would listen to them. 
And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are fighting like little kids, blaming each other. On one hand, the whole world was going after Jesus because in the next section of John's writing, we discover even the Gentiles showed up wanting to see Jesus. But on the other hand, the whole world had really gone after Jesus. If if they really did that, if the whole world really did that, why was nobody with him? Stand with him during his trial? Why did nobody stand there with him in in crucifixion? You see, most of the time when it looks like the whole world is following Jesus, what normally happens is they're following their own perception of Jesus. When the world learns that being a sincere follower of Jesus requires your very life. Whosoever come after me, let him pick up his, uh, uh, deny himself, pick up his cross and follow. Don't ever sit there and think that when it says about cross, it's bearing your cross. We always hear that. Cross is always death. Always represents death. It was that day's form. It could have just as well if it was in these days, let anyone who comes after me deny himself, sit in the electric chair, and follow me. Death to self. And so, we have all these people that when it comes to associating themselves with the shame of the cross, they stop following Christ. They stop following, and they do it rather quickly. You see, a couple of days after this apparent popularity of of Jesus, he ended up being not so popular after four days. Same people waving and saying, Oh, Hosanna in the highest, save us now. These same people ended up coming against Christ. The message for us is that you follow Christ. You're not going to be very popular either. If you'd please turn to uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Looking at verses 18 through 21. Here Jesus tells his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Do we do the things that we do for the glory of God or for the, the glory of men? 
You see, desiring the glory that comes from men leads to fearing men rather than fearing God. But the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. While the fear of men leads to foolishness and cowardice, the fear of men leads to doing things so that you can get temporary favor with people. The fear of men allows you to climb quickly up the corporate ladder. The fear of men makes you popular at school or at your job or in your neighborhood. But these things are fleeting like a vapor. Don't ever forget this. The glory that comes from men passes away in a moment, but the glory that comes from God is everlasting. What is your situation? Are these things that cause you to, to shrink away from publicly declaring your faith in Christ? Are you seeking acceptance with people? And does that desire for acceptance lead you to compromise your faith and shy away from speaking the gospel publicly to people? We need to remember the master is not above his servant. If they rejected Jesus, they'll reject you as well. We have a hard time with that. Being part of his, uh, being, being his disciple is giving up that fleeting glory from men for an everlasting glory that comes from God. And so I want to tell you this. Jesus did ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. His entry was not only triumphantly because He rode in order to take our sins outside the city and to be our sacrifice. Hebrews 13.12 says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. The author of Hebrews says, let us go outside the camp, bear reproach, the reproach He he endured. For this is not a lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. And so when the unconverted world embraces Jesus on Easter and Christmas, we have to have a message for them. When they walk through those doors, we have to have the message of a Savior who loved us so much He gave His life for us that we might live. He redeemed us through His sacrifice If you follow Jesus, you may be an outcast. You may suffer reproach. You may even be called to die for your faith. But reproach and death will not and cannot defeat you. Just as it didn't defeat Christ. Because in the end, you will be glorified just as Jesus was. Folks, let's seek His glory and His righteousness above all else. Let us seek His glory, the glory that comes from God rather than the glory that comes from man. Let's stand firm.
Let's be those people who seek our Lord and our Savior. Let's be the people who desire to live a life to glorify Him. Let's pray. We thank You for Your Word, Lord. Help us to think beyond the pain and sorrow of this world. Help us to think of Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. Lord, we know that there are people who are crying out to you, O God, have mercy on me, a sinner. who cry out, bless me this day with the blood of Christ. And they receive you as their Lord and Savior. And we rejoice in that. But Lord, help us to also anticipate the victory that is is for later. The later celebration. where there will be no more tears, where we will see things clearly, where we will be full of joy, everlasting. We ask this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.